What a privilege it is to come together and to hear the Word of God, and we continue to uh, make our way, our journey through the book of Hebrews. If you want to turn there, please, Hebrews chapter 12, continuing our exposition in this book, Um, today being brave enough to take three verses, last week was one, Um, but uh, it's been a glorious uh, study for us, and I trust that you're getting something out of it. And if there's one thing the writer to the Hebrews has done and made really clear is that our salvation does not depend upon our works, right? That it's, it's secured in Christ, right? His blood was shed. And, and we have such verses as chapter 10 and verse 10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. He's made it clear that Christ is the fulfillment of those Levitical priesthood, and he is our great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so, lots of gospel promises, lots to be assured of. But the writer also does something else throughout this letter, and that is to give warnings, strong warnings at times. The writer is is concerned for his hearers, And there's a repeated concern and warning about apostasy, about falling away. Now, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. We absolutely believe that if Christ had bled and died for you and purchased you, there's no way you can lose your salvation. But we also are keenly aware that someone can appear to know the lingo and to even walk with us for a season, and then there is a falling away because they never were in the faith. The writer back in chapter 2 and verse 1, for this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Why? So that we do not drift away. Now, that drift away is the idea of just slowly getting off course. And what happens after some time has passed? You are very far off course. You remember... And Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian takes the detour and jumps over the stile, he's basically, by 180 degrees, going the wrong way, eventually, at some point. Chapter 3 and verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil and an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. He says in chapter 10, You have need of endurance. And so, we must be careful about the deceitfulness of sin and how it can sink its teeth into us and grip us and and shackle us, as it were. This rhyme is something that we ought to think about much. Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to stray. It will cost you more than you ever dreamed you would pay. It will keep you longer than you ever thought you would stay. So we need to be wise. We need to walk in holiness, as he told us last week here. And and we, we need to not be deceived by our sin that we're cherishing it like a pet, right? The Puritans would use this language of cherishing secret sins. Remember uh, this man that had a pet boa constrictor that was very, very long for 15 years, and one day playing with the boa, boa constrictor outside of its cage, it wrapped itself around this man and actually would not let go and killed him. 
And that's the way sin is. It can be so friendly. It can be like a pet for decades until suddenly it kills us. So let's read verse, I'm going to read last week's text, which was verse 14, and then 15 to 17, which is the substance of our text today. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal, For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your inspired word. We thank you for the the lives of those that have been martyred and who have suffered much in the preservation of this word. We thank you that heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God abides forever. And so, Lord, we come seeking to be attentive, seeking to have minds that understand, seeking to even pray for those that maybe that are outside of Christ, that today might be the day of salvation. So send your spirit, O God. We confess we need your help, our help in paying attention, our help, my help in delivering this message. Lord, to the end, that Jesus Christ would be exalted and lifted up in our midst. Oh Lord, may each one here know that in a real sense that they have come to meet with the very living God of the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I mentioned last time that Hebrews 12 is that metaphor of a race. There's there's a little bit of an allusion to that in our text today, but that was really verses 1 to 13. We spent several weeks on that, and even the discipline that God brings to keep us in the race. And then in verse 14, there's a shift. And some take the, this fifth and last warning section to be merely verses 25 to 29. I see it more as beginning here in verse 14 to the end of the chapter. And there's a shift here, right? There's a there's an imperative, there's a command, there's, there's something that we are to pursue, actually two things that we are to pursue. Peace with all men, right? And then also holiness. And peace as that um, dynamic equivalent to shalom. It's not just, okay, we're not at conflict anymore, you know. Um, it's not just that, but it's actually desiring a blessing, a supernatural spiritual blessing upon others. And then this holiness, we talked about this as it's you don't pursue positional sanctification. That's like you don't pursue justification. What is that? Works righteousness. I'm going to do this and I'm going to achieve justification. And so sometimes sanctification is used of our position, which is similar to justification. But this is a clear reference to what we would call progressive sanctification. We work out our salvation and we know that He is working in us. And so we are to work it out. And then he says these words, without which no one will see the Lord. Very 
strong words. The writer's not saying that, that if you pursue peace and, and, and holiness that you've earned your way into God's presence. No, He's already made us fit. It's like the beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so, as we come to our text today, these exhortations are strong. Um, that imperative pursue, we saw last week, right? To, to diligently seek after, to hunt down like the hounds that, that hunt after the raccoons in the deep south. That's the idea. It's not just something that I'm walking in that direction. It's aggressively going forward. And then today, if you look at the beginning of verse 15, see to it. You say, well, that's, that's an odd word here. I'll unpack what that means. But we are to keep watch. We are to see to it. And there's three clauses that modify that, um, that, that are, that are sub, subordinate clauses, I should say, from that verb, see to it. And so, really, these are warnings against laziness, warnings against presumption, presumption of God's grace, presumption that you're okay with God. And why does God put these warnings in the Bible? I mean, can't we just you know, stick to the, all of God's good promises and grace and all that? Well, God, God, God does have a reason for that. And I put this in my email last night to you if you're on our email list, but it bears repeating. Because some people struggle, why are the warnings in Scripture? If we're saved by grace, can't we just leave it alone? Well, no, because your eternal soul is something of great value, right? It's something that, that shouldn't be taken lightly because we have deceitful hearts. I heard our brother pray in his pastoral prayer, right? Our hearts can deceive us, and so we need the warnings. Spurgeon explains it like this. Uh, he was 22 years old <laughs> um, when he preached this sermon. It just gives, shows the depth of understanding that he had. If God has put it in, put what in? These warning passages, right? If God has put it in for wise reasons and for excellent purposes, let me show you why. First, O Christian, it is put in to keep you from falling away. God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by the use of means. And one of these is the terrors of the law and showing them what would happen if they do fall away. If there is a deep precipice, what, what is the best way to keep one from going down there? Why, to tell him that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. In some old castle, there's a deep cellar where there's a vast amount, a vast amount of fixed air and gas which would kill somebody if anybody went down. Well, what does the guide say in the castle? He says, if you go down there you will not come up alive. Who thinks of going down? The very fact that the guide is telling what the consequences will be keeps us from it. Our friend has put away a cup of arsenic. He does not want us to drink it, but he says, if you drink it, it'll kill you, right? So what do you do? You don't reach for it. You don't grab it. Does he suppose for a moment that you would be foolish enough to actually grab the cup and drink it? No. He tells us the consequence. He is sure we will not do it. And God says, my child, if you fall over the precipice, you will be dashed to pieces. What does the child do? He says, Father, keep me. Hold me up and I shall be safe. 
It leads the believer to a greater dependence on God and to a holy fear and caution because he knows that if he were to fall away, he would not be renewed again. And he stands far away from that great gulf because he knows that if he were to fall into there, he would have no salvation. It is calculated to excite fear, and this holy fear keeps the Christian from falling. So, see to it! Watch out! Watch out! This is life and death, right? And our three main points, watch out! lest anyone come short of the grace of God. Two, watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness spring up. Three, watch out lest you despise the things of God like Esau did. So, let's look first. That It's verse 15a is the first point. Verse 15b is the second point, And 16 and 17 are the third point. So let's read it again. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. What in the world does it mean to come short of the grace of God? Wait a minute, I thought we're saved by grace through faith. What in the world does this mean? The verb that is used, the author has used once before, and it's, an, it's important to gain the understanding and the reason of why he would put this here. First, it means to, through one's own fault, to fail. Right Or to fail to reach or to miss. Now go back in chapter 3 of Hebrews. Chapter 3, the second warning section here. He says in verse 7, Therefore the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts when they provoked Me. Now this is a quote from Psalm 95. It's speaking of the the Exodus generation and their wonderings of how they hardened their heart, right? And he was angry with that generation because they always go astray. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, right? And so this is a very strong warning to those, that Exodus generation, for 40 years they saw my works and they just wandered around in an in a area where they could have been crossed in four or five months. Isn't that amazing? And then look at chapter 4 and verse 1. Here's where our word is. You ready? Right here. It says, Therefore let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you should have, or would seem to have come short of it. So that's the same word that we have in our text. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Both of these admonitions of what is to be missed out is God's final salvation. This is a warning to not presume upon the grace of God. We know that we, you can't lose your salvation, but it doesn't, it doesn't negate the fact that this is a warning, right? It's a warning that should be heeded. Grace, of course, applies to a full range of redemptive blessings, but here it's in reference to that final redemptive blessing of being glorified and gained entrance into heaven. To use the illustration of a race, as he had been doing, it's you're running the Christian life with endurance right of the race, or, or what you think to be, but you never cross the finish line. You never were in Christ. It's a real warning. God's grace is always available to true Christians. 
come to the throne of grace to find grace to, to help in time of need, right? 2 Corinthians 6.1, I'm working together with Him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Listen to John Calvin commenting on this phrase. Looking diligently or taking care or attentively providing, by these words he intimates that it is easy to fall away from the grace of God, for it is not without reason that attention is required. Because as soon as Satan sees us secure or remiss, he instantly circumvents us. We have, in short, a need of striving and vigilance if we would persevere in the grace of God. What's he saying there? Take it seriously. Satan wants to trip you up. He's the enemy of your soul. He's the enemy of your family. He's the enemy of this church. He wants to trip us up. So we need to be vigilant. We need to watch out. How can we ensure no one falls from the grace of God? Well, this verb, see to it, means to give attention to, to look out, to take care. That's the idea. It's, it's actually the verb form of the noun episkopos, which is one of the terms used for an elder, or sometimes translated bishop, one that presides and looks out after. So this is a episcopeo. It means to have oversight. The only other place it's used is in 1 Peter 5, 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, that's the word, not under compulsion. And so we are to see to it, to give attention to, to look out. And then these three warnings that no one would fall short of the grace of God. The writer is urging his audience to have the same deep pastoral concern for one another as he has demonstrated for them. We're not, we're not, when you're running a marathon of the Christian life, and, and you, to use the analogy of, of our church, and we're, move, we're running towards the, the, the finish line, and, and someone gets tripped up, or someone goes missing, what happens? We, we go back and we get him. We lift him up. We repair his legs so he can get back on the race, right? Because the goal is, is that we all cross the finish line. It's not see who wins and, you know, ha-ha, you lost. No, it's get everybody across together. It's like the military has these, you know, no man left behind. We need to think that way. One of the early, an early Greek commentator, I won't try to pronounce his name, <laughs> Uh, put, uh, put, put it in terms like this, of a band of travelers engaged on a journey. Every so often, you must periodically pause and count to make sure everyone is still there and someone hasn't been left behind. That's the idea here. And once again, just like verse 13, this is a corporate effort. We're all engaged in this. Remember in verse 13, well, I'll read 12 and 13, strengthen the hands that are weak, and the knees that are feeble, he doesn't say strengthen your hands and your knees, but the hands and knees of the congregation, and make straight paths for your feet, right? So make straight paths means to remove obstacles. Remember how we talked about that? So that all could run and proceed on. So there's a corporate effort involved, the entire congregation. In a real sense, you are your brother's keeper. Did you know that? You are. The Christian life is not merely just something personal and it's just me and my holy huddle with Jesus. There's a corporate aspect to it where you're part of a body of believers in a 
local individual churches scattered about the world and you're in your own local church. And that's been an emphasis in Hebrews. We have a responsibility to watch out for one another, to remove obstacles, to encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today. It's like when you're out on a dangerous hike. Um, My wife doesn't like snakes. I'm not sure why, and especially rattlesnakes. But when we're out on a hike, if I hear some rustling or I think there's something out there, I'm going to alert her to it, and she'll oftentimes jump higher in the air than you've ever seen her jump to the other side of the trail. But but what do we do when if you're on a dangerous hike? You're you're looking out for one another, brother. That rock looks looks loose. You know, you're climbing a hill or whatever. Or even the military has a buddy system that they use. So that's our first warning. Watch out, lest anyone come short of the grace of God. Secondly, watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness causes trouble. And the text says that no root of bitterness springing up causes troubles, and by it many are defiled. The writer certainly has... A passage in the book of Deuteronomy in mind, and I'd like to ask you to turn to Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29, the end of Deuteronomy, has the covenant curses, the covenant promises. This is in a section of the covenant of Moab. It's a warning. (laughs) Moses actually had warnings like this too. And in verse 18... So that there be not, so that there will not be among you a man or a woman, a family or a tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God and to go and serve the gods of those nations that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. I believe that's the text that the writer has in mind. Gall was a poisonous weed. Wormwood was a source of bitter herbs. These plants were symbols of poisonous and grievous sins in the Bible, especially sins of spiritual idolatry, as we see throughout the Old Testament. When stubbornness grows, it produces a a poisonous fruit of apostasy, which excluding oneself from the grace of God and the structure in the Greek is it's a genitive of quality, the, the root that is producing this bitter and poisonous fruit. Virtually every church has the bitter roots, the seeds of bitter roots in it, and that's why we need to be careful uh, to, first of all, not be so arrogant as to think that we have none of that. There, there can be some of that. It may be under the surface And then it says that that it causes trouble. Actually, let me read verse 19 of that chapter. It shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in stubbornness in my heart in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him. That's a strong warning in Deuteronomy. And obviously from the structure you can see the similarity of this root, this poisonous root. And it's poisonous because it does what? It causes trouble, right? That's what it says. So much trouble that others are defiled. So this poisonous is not just for that person, it affects others, right? And that's 
just like we know, our sin affects others, doesn't it? And so it causes trouble, this bitter root of sin. Of Oftentimes it's error, you know, it's misrepresenting God, rapidly spreads. Look at the examples, just even in the Old Testament, the sons of Korah. You see how quickly they grew until God finally said enough and opened up the earth and consumed them. You think of the unbelief of the ten spies, right? Kadesh Barnea, they go in, the twelve spies, uh, Caleb and Joshua saying we can overcome them, but the other ten were like, they were giants in our sight, and all the people feared. And it was that occasion that God said, you shall not enter. Your children will enter, but you will not enter. And, and such the, the time going up to the 40 years began. The Baal worship and idolatry, read the book of Judges, how they fall into that and how everybody just kind of follows along with it. You see, many are defiled as it grows and spreads. What does it mean to be defiled as simply unfit for God's presence? Um, Paul tells in Titus, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. In reality, this root, or we might think of a, a flower bulb, you know, that's under the surface may be concealed in the soil and we do not even see it. It could be concealed actually for a, a considerable amount of time, but sooner or later, when the conditions are right, that's watered enough, the sun is there, what happens? It shows itself above the soil. And just like bulbs that lie hidden in the earth, so too the bulbs, the seeds of apostasy can lie in the hearts of unbelievers, in a heart of unbelief, in a heart of disobedience. And so sometimes drastic action is needed to eradicate this from the covenant community. The covenant community is God's prized possession. The New Testament covenant community is the church of Christ. And that's why we are called to keep the church pure. But even in that Old Testament economy, what happened to the false prophets? Were they told to go to the next area and to leave the... No, they were stoned. They were killed. Why? Because it's dangerous to the covenant community to have false prophets propagating lies. When a person becomes defiled, it is tragically contagious in the body of Christ. And so... We have a responsibility to keep the church pure. You remember last week, a sad day for our church as we handled a church discipline issue and we ended it sadly with excommunication. But when that happens and you're in the church and something serious like that's going on, that's a good time to examine yourself because except for the grace of God, there go I. So to use opportunities like that Many churches and denominations tolerate sexual immorality, all types of immoral behavior and, and lifestyles. They, they often deny the core doctrines of the church, of the Bible, and then they, they still want to take the name church of this or church of that or whatever hip name there may be. That's why having a, a clear statement of faith as far as what we believe and even a confession that we we hold to it is so important that like anybody that's checking us out can find out everything they need from our website as far as what we believe. Well, who is at risk? 
for apostasy. Who is at risk of having this, this, this root, this poisonous root growing inside of them? Anyone who professes Christ. Right? Anyone that professes Christ. Now mark my words, I'm not saying anyone who's been redeemed by Christ, but anyone who professes Christ is at risk of apostasy. Apostasy is a, that idea of, 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 of a separation from one thing to another it literally means to stand off from or to withdraw or to forsake. Paul gives the warning to Timothy in chapter 4 and verse 1, by their, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, some will fall away from the faith. Now, the children of Israel, when the, after the Red Sea was parted, they set out on a journey. They set out to be rescued from slavery. They started off good, didn't they? But very quickly, we're grumbling and tripped up. Judas is with Christ and the disciples for, what, three and a half years? Maybe longer, but it doesn't end so well with him, does it? How about Ananias and Sapphira? They thought they knew better. They, they, you know, it wasn't the fact that they tithed 50%. I mean, some people, you could read that the wrong way. They tithed 50%. I've never done 50% in my life. And God struck them down. No, it's the fact that they lied, right? Demas. Paul speaks kindly of Demas and Philemon and other places, but yet at the very last book that Paul wrote, 2 Timothy, he says, Demas, having loved this present world, he's left him. Started out well. Co-worker with the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul. Can you imagine rubbing elbows with him? And not so well. So who needs this warning? Who's at risk for this? It's anyone who professes Christ. And as God's people in the church, we are to watch carefully for the, even the beginnings of apostasy in our midst. We're not to wait until the poisonous root sprouts up and it's got a trunk this big. We're to eradicate it early. We must take decisive action to root it out as it springs forth. Because left to grow, that root of bitterness will trouble the church and bring it into disorder and confusion. One or two of the commentators actually thought that this, um, this trouble is heresy. Well, it certainly means misrepresenting God. Um, Robert Paul Martin says, that eventually many are defiled and polluted by unbelief and sin. We are to be the spiritual EPA, the Spiritual Environmental Protection Agency, to be diligent at pollution control. Pollution, those that are defiled. So we've seen the first two warnings, haven't we? See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. See to it that no poisonous roots spring up. Now thirdly, Watch out, lest you despise the things of God like Esau did. Let's read it. And that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. I've got three subpoints under this. This is 16a. In contrast to Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, right, that we spent, what, four months in or maybe longer, in contrast to that, we now have Esau as a type too, but a type of apostasy 
and unbelief. There's nothing good about him as you study the Genesis account. You know, I used my concordance and saw all the places where the uh, uh, Esau shows up. There's, not, there's nothing good about him. Even to where in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament before the 400 years of silence, says in the beginning of Malachi 1-2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? And yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for jackals in the wilderness. So much so that Paul talks of, uses this in Romans 9 as an illustration for election, right? The twins yet unborn in the womb. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And of course people want to contest with God, but that's unfair. Uh, Esau married Hittite wives to the grief of Isaac and Rebekah. It says uh, when, when Esau was 40 years old, he married uh, these wives and it brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. From Esau would come the Edomites, friendlies with Israel? No. <laughs> Arch enemies of Israel, right? Throughout, throughout the Israel's time. So, what does it say here? That there be no immoral and godless person. Two adjectives. The first is pornos. It's one who practices sexual immorality, a fornicator. The second is godless, which is the opposite of holy. It means to be totally worldly. Now, our Bibles don't mention Esau's sexual immorality. Um, but there are plenty of Jewish traditions that they can go on and on that indicate he was certainly sexually immoral. Uh, I think the term can have a broad meaning. It can even be metaphorical, as a couple commentators had said. It's important to note that sexual immorality is often used metaphorically in the Old Testament to indicate that idolatry and that rejection of God. So we might think of it as his prostitution of his relationship with God. But I do think that he was sexually immoral, but I think this word can actually be taken in that broad sense as we see again and again throughout the warnings of the prophets of this prostituting, this harlotry, right? Israel was even called like a, a prostitute because they, they left the one true God for a season that would actually fit with the Deuteronomy 29 passage, the issues of idolatry and turning away and apostasy. So these wicked behaviors here, see to it that no immoral or godless person, think of it sexual immorality, think of it as total worldliness. What is our nation built upon? What are the advertisers banking on? Those very things. Worldliness and sensualness and godliness. And now, just in case there's someone here that says, oh, that might be metaphorical, I can continue in my sexual immorality. Um, no, because in the next chapter he says in 13.4, marriage is to be held in honor among all in the marriage bed, is to be undefiled. Now, if you don't get this, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge very, very clear. That covers all 
forms of sexual sin God will judge. So really these three verses, these three clauses in these three verses are really saying the same thing but from a different angle, right? And as we continue to unpack this, I think you'll see it. So Esau was profane. He had little regard for spiritual things. It says, like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. The writer is demonstrating Esau's absolute utter folly and foolishness in the decision that he did, of which Carlo read in Genesis 25. He comes in famished, right? And what does he say? He he says, I'm about to die. What good is my birthright to me? Was he about to die? He was he was hungry, but I don't think he was about to die. Now, sometimes I come to my wife and I'm like, honey, I'm about to die. Can I have something to eat? And it's just, <laughs> she'll say the same thing. You're not about to die. <laughs> I don't say that to her. <laughs> I probably have at some point in 25 years. Um, but anyway, so even the word that he uses here, it's, okay, so who sold his own birthright for a single meal, that for a single meal is a word that only occurs about, I think, 16 times, but it's anti It's basically, instead of a birthright, give me the bowl of stew. It's like a a, a distinct separation. And then this word single is emphatic. His own and and single, it heightens the carelessness and perversity of the action of Esau. It points to Esau's desire for immediate and physical gratification in contrast to the spiritual blessings of God. The firstborn son, of course, we know has certain rights and privileges. The firstborn son would receive a a double portion of the inheritance, right? He would carry on the family name. There was a there was a a lot to be. uh, There was a lot that the firstborn son um, was expected to perform, but also a blessing, and it's symbolic of the blessings, spiritual blessings, with the covenant of Abraham. But he. Threw it all away. What good is that? I just, I just want my belly filled. That's, who cares about that? And then, of course, verse 17 shows us decades later, right? As the blessings are being given out and Jacob's deception, right? Um, and, of course, uh, Rachel, you know, assisting, getting the goat hair and put, putting it on his hands and all that in Genesis 27. We don't have time to read the whole thing, right? But, um, Isaac's old, he's in his old age, and, and he gives the blessing of the firstborn to Jacob. Of course, that was all by design. Verse 17, For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. It's one of the most terrifying verses in the Bible, isn't it? You ever read that and just pause and think about that and meditate upon that? There's a close connection between Esau losing his birthright and swearing in Genesis 25 to actually missing out on the blessing in Genesis 27. The word here that it says that he was rejected is a very strong word. It's what we call a divine passive. This is something that God has done to him. Um, It's related to Dokimazo. It's Apodokimazo, 
It's the word that's used when Jesus says, have you ever read the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected. That's the word. And the stone that the builders rejected, the stone is Christ. The builders, Israel, rejected Him, right? There's a strong rejection there. So Esau's estimation of the blessing, being small, rash, take it or leave it, right? His decision to trade his birthright for a meal shows utter contempt of God's good and gracious covenant. John Calvin once again says, While Esau was hungry, he cared for nothing but how he might have his stomach well filled. And when full, he laughed at his brother and judged him a fool for having voluntarily deprived himself of a meal. Nay, such also is the stupidity of the ungodly, as long as they burn with depraved lust and they plunge themselves into sinful pleasures after a time. They understand how fatal to them all, all of the things which they so eagerly desired. And isn't that what happens in Genesis 27? There's, there's this Jacob receives a blessing. Now, first of all, let's just, you know, Jacob was a conniver, right? Jacob, you know, did some things he probably shouldn't have done. Uh, but one thing can be said about Jacob. He believed in the promise of God, right? All those patriarchs had their flaws. We went through that in, in some detail in a, a few different sermon series. Um, but Jacob believed the promise. That's what separates him from Esau. Maybe he valued it so much that he was willing to go to great lengths to get the promise or to get the, the first blessing, um, or the oldest son blessing. But what does it say here, Esau? I mean, the language is very... Shocking. You can turn to Genesis 27 or just listen to me as I read it. Verse 38. Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? This is after he's discovered Jacob's already received the blessing. Bless me, even me also, O my father. So Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Four verses earlier, when Esau heard the words of his father, well, first of all, even verse 33. So when they discover that you know Jacob had deceived, then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was that then had hunted gain and brought it to me, so that I ate of it just before you came, and I blessed him? Yes, he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, notice the language, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me, O my father. See, this is the, this is the language that the writer is referring back to, right? And, and, and so, there, that's, that's regret. Those, that, that's language of imminent regret. Now remember, when he sold his birthright, he was young. I can't. I didn't do the math, but it's probably at least forty years later. Probably more, um, maybe even more, like sixty or seventy years later, when this Genesis twenty-seven occasion is happening. So when it says here that he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. 
he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Um, many connect that to though he sought it with tears. He found no repentance, though he was crying for repentance. Grammatically, it's not like that. That's why when you exegete a passage, you can actually see what the antecedent is and so forth. What he sought with tears was the blessing. And you might think of that phrase, I just, I, when I study something and I come to a conclusion, I just add parentheses, for he found no place for repentance is parenthetical, actually, in this verse. What he was seeking with tears, and what I just read to you from Genesis 27, was the blessing. Now, the blessing is somewhat related to repentance, right? If he received the blessing. But here's the thing, there was no repentance. There was no regret, Right? There's no regret. There's no nothing that would indicate that he had any level of regret. No indication that he was trying to make right his foolish decisions. His only interest was to reclaim the blessing that he had forfeited. What a horrible thing. Can you imagine what Esau felt? He wept bitterly and left it up a great cry because the reality of what has happened had finally fallen upon him. You know, it stinks when you lose something of value, right? I remember losing my wallet, I believe, only once when I was around 18 years old. You know, there's that sinking feeling of loss. Another time, we were on a men's hike out at Borrego Springs 20-plus years ago, and it was really hot, and I sat my $150 brand-new Ray-Ban sunglasses on a log and was splashing water on me and then just went off and kept walking. And by the time we came back on the return, of course, they were, they found a new home. Um, they weren't there. <laughs> you know, the, the sinking feeling of someone that loses their passport in a foreign land, you know? Was, I mean, it, it, it's not fun to lose anything, but, but far worse to lose the ability to be able to repent and be rejected by God. It underscores the deep seriousness of his rejection and of God's gracious and good gifts. Esau was hardened beyond repentance. His tears were worldly sorrow, right? 2 Corinthians 7. He's sorry that he lost something. He's not sorry that he dishonored God in any way by treating his promises as virtually worthless. It's a warning for everyone here that today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't assume you'll be able to get right with God tomorrow. Get right with Him today. Esau is a tragic example of the one who the writer has referred to a few times in chapter 10 and verse 26 where he says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Or in chapter 6, In verse 6, and having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Esau is a tragic example of that. Very sad. So today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. A couple points of application for us, brethren. By way of encouragement... Those who are truly in the Lord Jesus Christ are kept by His power and the inheritance guarded for them. He will cause you to persevere. 
Though we stumble, though we struggle, it is God's grace that keeps us getting up and and causing us to persevere. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we consider Him, the calculating of that deep mathematical problem, we calculate and we think of His person, we think of His work, we think of His intercession, we think of His death, burial, resurrection, and how He's at the right hand of God. These are the things that God has given us to persevere. We all, once and for all, have been perfected in Christ. Second one. So, that's supposed to bring a little bit of balance from all the warnings. Okay, If you're in Christ, you're secure. Secondly, have a deep and real concern for the brethren. Right? It's all the pastors will worry about that. No, you should be loving one another. You should be praying for one another. Perhaps even maybe during this message, the Lord's been bringing someone to mind that might be like an Esau, that might be living an immoral lifestyle, that once professed that they knew God, but are now walking away. Maybe have departed for months, or maybe even years. Or even, maybe there's somebody that we haven't seen the last month or two. Write down their names on a bulletin right now, and call or text this week. Reach out! Some people come very late and they leave very early and they, they, they may be in trouble. They may need your concern and your love. Remember, see to it. It's all of us are to see to it. Now the elders have that primary responsibility, but, but it, that doesn't mean that they do all of this. Remember, corporate effort. Think of those that you know, even in other parts of the world or other states that have moved away, that aren't doing well, that may need a word of encouragement and maybe even warning from you. Um, Pastor Robert Paul Martin, Reformed Baptist, who had gone to be with the Lord, the church, the, and SeaTac, where, where you guys allow me to go from time to time to preach as his old church. But he's, done, um, he's written a beautiful commentary on Hebrews that just came into print. He's been dead for about eight years. But at the, at the end of this section, he gives the uses. The Puritans would give an exposition, right? Or they would give the doctrine, they would give an exposition of it, and then they would give what's called the application, which would often be called uses. And he has four uses, and so four applications for you. This path, number one, this passage teaches that we cannot depend on spiritual privileges as a guarantee of inheritance promised. Esau was Isaac's firstborn son, circumcised, taught all the things of God, and yet he did not inherit the promise of blessing. Use two. We must beware of an unprincipled attachment to material things and material comfort. This may be the door to apostasy as it was for Esau who sold his birthright to comfort his hungry belly. The original readers once joyfully suffered their goods. Remember back in chapter 10, the seizure of their goods. They, 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 They joyfully did that because their birthright of being joint heirs with Christ, but now they are in danger of, seek, of, of, of further loss if they forsake Christ. Use three, we must look carefully, lest there begin to rise up in our hearts or rise up in our brother's heart those sins to which apostates are prone. Once your heart is given to in pure thoughts, in acts, or treating sacred things with disdain, you can 
or selling one's soul for lentil stew, can selling one's soul for lentil stew be far behind? And then he gives a quote by John Owen. This is a sin which men have habitually given up to. They are never or very rarely recovered from it. When any sensual lust has obtained a habitual predominancy in anyone, it does contract to intimate a league with the flesh so that it can hardly be eradicated and used for. Consider the regrets that one will one day happen to all apostates. They live for a long time in a profane state. Things are going well for them, and they prosper for some time. And he began to value the birthright only when it was too late. And quote, may God have mercy on any here that is living a sensual lifestyle regarding the things of God with disdain or putting little value there. Maybe living a life that's fast and loose and licentiousness. Do you find yourself lazy in regards to the means of grace? Do you think yourself a stronger Christian, a soldier of the cross than you really are? Let him who who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. To, To live a life of being lazy and presumptuous. This is a warning. This is a warning that needs to be heeded. Let it have its impact in your life. There are those trading their inheritance for that which will never satisfy, for that which will not sustain them in that great day. If you're trifling with God, living a godless life, there may come a day when you've gone too far and you are unable to repent because God has rejected you once and for all. Hell is a place of regrets! Is it not? Utter regrets! So, today is the day of salvation. Come to Him today. Run to Him. Why would you want to put it off if you're outside of Christ? Confess your sins. Repent of your sins. Get right with God. And He will save you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the promises. We thank You for the comforts that Your Word brings. And Lord, it's a little harder We also thank You for the warnings that grip our attention. Lord, may Your Word not return void even this very day. May You have dealings with any who are on the edge, on the fence, who who need to make a renewed commitment to the Lord. Not some silly walking forward for the 14th time to somehow try to secure one's salvation, but a real recommitment to the Lord, realizing that neglecting the Word of God in our daily devotions and, and, and giving very little time in the span of a week to prayer is not the way of a Christian and how he should walk. Lord, help us to be men and women of the book. Men and women of prayer that we know our God and all of His glorious attributes. And Lord, that we would watch out that we would see to it, increase our love one for another, that we would be able to do that faithfully. And Lord, not to not some self-righteous righteous hobby horse where, where somebody begins to just scrutinize every single person's life. That's not what the text is saying. 
but it's saying of a genuine concern for each other. Build us closer as a church. Make us stronger in Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Continue to increase our unity, O God. Thank you again for this difficult passage and the warning that we have received. May we not take it lightly. In Jesus' name, amen.